Hi, I'm Yaakov Katz, a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute, and welcome to another episode of our inside analysis of Israel's war against Hamas. Tonight, I'm joined on our panel by two uh, women, Brigadier General Ruthia Rohn, the former IDF spokesperson, former diplomat with the Foreign Ministry, and a former senior fellow at JPPI, an analyst on the current war, and Donna Fan Luzon, a fellow at JPPI and TV media analyst and uh, commentator. We are, before we go into the panel, we discuss, I, I want to discuss tonight, obviously, two issues. One is as we speak, more hostages are hopefully being released. Another uh, 13, I think it is, uh, nine women, nine children, sorry, and four women will be released this evening. Uh, alongside a few of uh, the Thai hostages and apparently a Russian-Israeli hostage as well, per the request of Russian President Vladimir Putin to Hamas, however that was made. So we're going to talk a bit more about the hostages, how everything has been done, how that's going, and what does it mean for the future of the operation, because we're already at day three, and the ceasefire or the pause is meant to be just for four days. And then there's also the issue of the media. So before we talk about that, I did an interview earlier today with Elon Levy. Elon is a uh, government spokesperson. He has been doing really, I think, a fantastic job, a young individual who uh, enlisted very quickly, despite, and I didn't really talk about this with him because he is in a government role, but if you followed him uh, over the last eight, nine months, you would see that every Saturday night he's out with signs protesting the government. He put that aside and joined the uh, public diplomacy efforts of the government and has really been doing a fantastic job uh, representing Israel and explaining what's been happening in this war and against, obviously, uh, Hamas. He became famous, and you'll see in a moment, because of this one video, an interview he did last week with Sky News. So spoke to him. We spoke a bit about his eyebrows and his eyes that popped open in that interview. I also played that sec that segment. So here's the interview I did earlier with Elon Levy, and then we'll go to Ruth and Donna. Elon Levy, uh, spokesperson for the Israeli government, it's great to have you with us at JPPI. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for the conversation, Yaakov. So uh, before we start, I mean, you know, like, I've known you for a long time. I think you're great. I think you've been doing an amazing job. Very um, and I think that, you know, probably a lot of people have been watching you throughout this whole period. But I also uh, wanted to, you've come a, a little famous lately. The whole world has basically <laughs> watched a video of it's you. not me, just the eyebrows. Yes. I want to play 25 seconds of it and then come back to you. So give me okay. 20, here's 25 seconds of what's made a loan famous around the world. I was speaking to a hostage negotiator this morning. He made the comparison between the 50 hostages, hostages that Hamas has promised um, promised to release, as opposed to the 150 prisoners that are Palestinians that Israel has said that it will release. And he made the comp comparison between the numbers and the fact that does Israel not think that Palestinian lives are valued as highly as Israeli lives? That is an astonishing accusation. If Okay, I mean, you go on and you give an answer. And to anyone who hasn't watched the full video, you have to, because forget about the, the eyebrows and the, and the eyes popping open. But alone, you gave a great answer, so people should watch it. But but my question to you... You know, Yaakov, you say that, but, but with the benefit of hindsight, 
you know, I watched back interviews and there was always a better answer I could give. Sure, I said we'd gladly have one uh, exchange one prisoner for every one hostage. The correct answer would have been we'd be quite happy to get all 240 hostages back uh, for zero prisoners, especially if the original offer made the Palestinians feel undervalued. Which obviously made her whole question insane to begin with. But bonkers. But when I'm quite so I want to talk today with you about you've done probably I saw you write somewhere on Twitter 150, 200 interviews, probably. Yeah, hitting the 200 now. I mean, this one shocked you. What 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 was it about this one specifically? And then we'll zoom out, we'll talk about the bigger challenge of representing Israel to the media. Sure. I've been asked a lot of very strange questions in the course of this war. Sometimes during the interviews, the penny doesn't drop quite how obscene the interview uh, question is, because I think perhaps I haven't heard it correctly. I had one interview with the BBC, the Today Show. Uh, we were discussing the CCTV footage of the hostages being manhandled into the Shifa hospital. And the interviewer asked whether we also had CCTV footage of the medical treatment that they may have received in the hospital, because that would be of interest uh, to us. An interview with Sky, uh, who was insisting that that uh, Sinwar was agreeing to release hostages despite Israel's military pressure, not because military pressure. An Irish interviewer who insisted that for five weeks now Hamas has been begging to give us back our hostages, and it's Israel that's responding to pressure rather than the other way around. Uh, but this interview question was truly astonishing. I mean, it reminds me of the, the allegation that was made a few years ago that uh, IDF soldiers are racist because they don't want to rape Palestinian women. I mean, on that level of... Yes. That level of being completely stuck within a worldview in which Israel is always the on the wrong side and the Palestinians are always on the right side, that you're able to deal with that cognitive dissonance by taking the facts and twisting them in such a way as to fit, fit the narrative instead of taking the narrative and saying, hmm, perhaps it's time to reevaluate actually what we think about the situation. So, you know, I mean, I've done many less interviews than you, but I've done a fair share over the last seven weeks. You've Most also been putting in a good fight yourself, Yaakov. Thank you. I appreciate it. But mostly, less with the British media, mostly, mostly American. Mm. And my impression, personally, has been, I feel like I've come up against balanced questions, right? You know, obviously, they don't love us, but it's not hostile. You have a much bigger, broader picture to paint for us. What? So if you had to sum up as of now what you've seen, how do you break it down? There's definitely a spectrum. I have to say, I've been very positively impressed with the American media. I think they've not only been very balanced, they've also really gone out of their way to shine a spotlight on the atrocities of October 7th. I've done CNN, I've done Fox, I've done MSNBC, and even the most difficult interviewers who ask the difficult questions, and that's their job, and that's what they should do, and that's what gives me the best opportunity to present Israel's case. Uh, it was always very fair and understanding. The British media tend to be a lot more hostile, BBC, Channel 4, Sky News uh, as well, uh, often simply cutting me off and changing subject when uh, the answer seems to be going in a direction perhaps they don't like. And the Irish media as well, although there I've been pleasantly surprised as well by some interviews that have been actually happy to give me the stage and explain. Although the Irish case. Prime Minister had that tweet that uh, Emily Hand got lost, right? And he, she, he's glad... A lost child has been found. Right? Yeah, really, really bizarre. That statement as if Emily Hand had been hiding in a lost and found box or had gone missing at the supermarket. I understand there's some attempt to explain that it was a uh, connection to a New Testament uh, verse. I have to say, when I saw that, the first thing that came to mind was amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Uh, but the uh, immediate word associations were, um, uh, I was blind, but now I see. 
so I'm not sure that that uh, uh, that uh, association is necessarily the one they wanted, but really a, a, a bizarre statement. And uh, beyond that, I think on a broader point, this really explains why Israel is pursuing the strategy that it is pursuing. You know, we're putting military pressure on Hamas in order to get the hostages out. We've had it begging for a breather because it's getting clobbered, uh, which is the way I've been putting it in international media. And it's not because uh, Israel asked nicely. And if we'd followed the advice of governments that have been calling for a ceasefire or who have criticized Israel's military action as something approximating revenge, as I think it was that the Irish put it, then little Emily Hand would still be a hostage. And uh, and now she's free because of the pressure that we've been putting on Hamas. So, Elon, I mean, you're British. You, you, were, you were educated at Cambridge, Oxford, both? Both. 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 I thought it was both. I wasn't sure. Um, so you know the country well. You grew up there. You were raised there. I mean, can you go a little deeper? Do you, do you understand why the British are more hostile to Israel than, let's say, the U.S. media? It's a really excellent question. Again, I think there's a spectrum. Uh, the left-wing media has been more hostile than the right-wing media. Talk TV, GB News, for example, have actually been extremely favorable. But there is a certain worldview uh, that sees Israel within a very specific context. And every country views Israel through the lens of its own neuroses and its own history. That's why we see, for example, in the United States, the whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict being understood through the lens of race, uh, which simply does not work here. The lens simply does not apply. Uh, and within Britain as well, through the lens of colonialism, uh, for example, left-wing people will interpret the Israeli story through that lens. Again, couldn't be further from the truth. I think Zionism is the most successful anti-colonial movement in the world, definitely in the Middle East. When you look at that whole stretch of the Middle East, there's only one minority that was able to stand up and claim its right to sovereign dignity and independence on its own ancestral homeland, and that's the Jewish people in the land of Israel. But, you know, people understand the news through narratives and through stories. We're a storytelling uh, species, not through facts. And so people read it through the stories that make sense to them. And if they, they see their own world through that lens, especially with the, the shift that we've seen um, within academia, for example, understanding everything through the lens of liberation and oppression and a worldview that sees everything as being split, not between good people and bad people or good actions and bad actions, but between oppressors and oppressed, uh, then you end up with that uh, conclusion where the oppressed are able to do whatever they want in order to secure liberation. And you cannot accept that Jews or Israelis are victims because the worldview says that victims are always right. And so if the Israelis are victims, that means that they might have a point. And you're already emotionally invested in saying that they don't have a point and it's the Palestinians who are right on this side. So it's, it's it, I think, multiple layers, multiple layers of, of psychology, and that makes it a very difficult problem to deal with. And I've noticed in the interviews that you do, you are also trying to tell a story, right? It's not just the facts and it's not just, you know, this is what we're doing today. This is where we're going. It is trying to evoke emotion. It is trying to give facts. It's trying to tell a story more and trying to connect the viewer with, with the Israeli experience. Is that, I'm guessing that's intentional. Absolutely. We're, we're a storing, storytelling species. You cannot just present the facts and expect that to resonate with people at home, especially when all the images we're seeing on TV strike them and hit them. And obviously, because what we're seeing on television is very difficult. It's not enough to say there are children who are trapped in 
the Gaza Strip as hostages. Show them. And I've had several uh, interviews in which I have held up a picture of one of the hostages and spoken about his personal story. Little Ohad Munda, um, I think the whole country's national hero now, that little kid with the, the schnitzel and the Rubik's Cube, um, just released from Hamas captivity. My first appearance on BBC Newsnight, I held up a picture of him and I told his story. I think with with when trying to explain our case, you know, the rule of thumb for good public diplomacy is show, don't tell because words can only go so far. And images, especially when you're on TV, go so much further. I'll give you another example. Uh, near the beginning of this war, you know, the United Nations has been saying for a month and a half now that Gaza is going to run out of electricity tomorrow because it's run out of fuel. And the army puts out a statement saying uh, Hamas has half a million liters of fuel. Now, what does that mean? No one, that, that you have no context to understand what half a million liters of fuel are. In one of the daily press conferences that we give, I held up a picture of the fuel tankers. I wrote on the bottom in a felt tip pen, being a bit cheeky there to show what the coordinates are so people can check it for themselves. And then I showed a picture of a Boeing 747. I held up a picture of a, a jumbo jet and said, Hamas has enough fuel to circumnavigate the globe in a Boeing 747. I then showed a picture of the Toyota Hiluxes that they used during that awful day on October 7th when they rampaged their way through southern Israel. And I said, Hamas has enough fuel to circumnavigate the globe 178 times in one of these Toyotas uh, based on the back of the envelope calculation. And I think examples like that where you show pictures and you're able to contextualize it and put it in terms that people can understand is so essential because otherwise it's just talk, 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 talk. He said, she said, and it's images and it's stories that make the most enduring impact. So, Elon, you know, you've been uh, you've been in the media before, right? You were the international spokesperson for President Herzog for a number of years, the first couple of years of his term. You've been uh, you're the translator of a great number of really best selling books here in Israel that have also done very well outside of Israel in the English language due to your uh, great translation. Uh, you've written a lot and you enlisted right away in the war effort. And I was, very, a, I was a TV anchor as well before I started. Right, with I-24, I I that's yeah. Correct. Um, and, and here you are, uh, you enlisted right away when the war began. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the great, I think, challenges is being able to rattle off those answers, to be able to have them ready. And I'm, I'm, so I'm just curious how the, the public diplomacy directorate works. Like, do you in the morning have a meeting with some of your staff or some of the other people, other members, Mark Grega, for example, is doing a great job. There's a few other people and think about what's today's talking points. Like how, how, give us some, maybe a bit of taste of the behind the scenes there. So I'm part of the National Public Diplomacy Directorate, which is the body under the prime minister's office that brings together all the actors on the national stage to make sure we're on the same page. And as they say, the left hand knows what the right hand is doing. So we have the foreign ministry and the IDF and the police and all the various authorities around one table able to coordinate messages. Now, of course, I'm also working closely with Ambassador Mark Regev, a rock star in his own right, uh, who was previously ambassador in the UK, has been with the prime minister for very many years, with Ophir Falk, the prime minister's diplomatic advisor. And so when sensitive questions come up, we're able to check, okay, well, how do we want to respond to this uh, specifically, trying to preempt what is going to come up? We notice what questions are going to be uh, particularly sensitive. Uh, but by and large, Israel's message has been consistent for the last month and a half. Nothing strategically has changed that the October 7th massacre forced our hand, thrust us into a new reality. And we have two main goals. 
the total destruction of Hamas, so it can never hurt our people again, and the Gaza Strip can never be a security threat, and the return of our hostages. And we're going to continue going until we achieve those two aims. You know, if there's one line I've repeated so many times uh, ad nauseam already, that to me, it, it sounds almost cliched, but apparently for many people around the world is not yet understood. This isn't a war Israel started. It's not a war Israel wanted. It's not a war Israel even expected. It's a war that was forced onto Israel with the October 7th massacre, the deadliest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, and it's a war that we are going to win. And it's a war that we have to end with the end of Hamas, because otherwise we're going to find ourselves in another round of conflict in six months' time, this time with a Hamas that feels far emboldened to attack our people again. And that's the core message that keeps going through the whole of this campaign. This really isn't a situation we want to be in. And I think that's a point that perhaps some in the international media don't understand. Perhaps they even think Israel takes some sort of perverse pleasure in this campaign, not understanding that no one more than us wants this to be over. We want our 350,000 friends who are in the reserves to be home and not to be stuck in Gaza. Obviously, we want all the hostages home and we want to start diverting our attention to the urgent task of rebuilding this country after this terrible trauma of finding healing, of trying to harness that spirit of unity towards towards a, a better future and a changed reality that gives us the sort of security that we've been, uh, we haven't had for too long from the South. Elon, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. And I want to really thank you for your, just the amazing job you've been really doing thank on you. behalf of the State of Israel and the Jewish people. So I really uh, appreciate it. Keep it up. Keep those eyebrows trimmed. And... <laughs> I, I have my secret weapon, my tweezers. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Elon. <laughs> okay, thank you, Yaakov. Have a good day. Thank you. So that was uh, the conversation with Elon Levy, um, who I really think has been doing a good job. And Ruth, I thought to start with you, you know, uh, we one of the things that I think has really been uh, prominent in this war We've seen in previous conflicts, obviously, the idea of spokesperson's office, Dover Sahal, always plays a very important role in explaining what's happening on the ground. But this is probably one of the first wars, I'd say, in decades that that we we, we, we as a country finally have a very, it seems, effective public diplomacy effort that's also being run on more of a governmental level. Uh, is that also your impression? Yes, I think so. I think that this time around, maybe due to the terrible circumstances in which we started, I think that the event of uh, October 7th were so clear that from the get-go, we, we, we had uh, a favorable look at what Israel is doing. But there are two major other factors on top of what you've discussed with Elon that I think are contributing to the fact that I think that Israel's side of the story is being heard this time in a better way. Not completely, and there's still plenty to do, but I think that much better than before. The first one is definitely the IDF spokesperson. I think that uh, Brigadier General Hagari is doing an excellent job, both in the fact that he is there systematically. He was twice a day now, once a day. He's there in the evening, he's there in Hebrew and in English. He answers questions, he clarifies things, he uses material, he brings the journalist or, or the media representative to the field, to the battleground itself. It diffuses a lot of, of images, and I think that it gives a, great, a, a, a very good and solid context to what it is that we are doing and why we are doing it. So this is something which is sort of a pillar to build on. 
There is another factor this time around, again, on top of what Elon and his colleague on, are doing on, on, on behalf of the government of Israel. And these are the private uh, uh, people on Twitter or TikTok or all the other new media, uh, like Ella Travels, right? She became uh, very uh, famous when she was the first one to start Hamas ISIS, is ISIS, right. mm-hmm. which is a branding that really captures the core of the evil we are facing. And since then, uh, there have been Noah Tishbi and Gal Gadot and, and many other, not all of them are famous. Maybe they become famous by now. But I think that the fact that there was a lot of uh, 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 initiative, private initiative of Israeli citizens who are saying this is what's happening and are telling the story not necessarily on the strategic level, but also on the micro level. This is what's happening to my community. This is what's happening to me, to my friend, etc. I think that open not only the eyes and minds of people around uh, uh, around the world, but also the hearts. I think that people could, like, could identify and sympathize with what's going on right now here in Israel. As you know, we are watching now the 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 abductees coming back home and we see nine children i mean for for heaven's sake who would think of children being captured for 51 days in in hamas tunnel somewhere in gaza those are not only horrific uh, uh, thoughts but those are almost sorry that it's almost impossible to to understand unless you see vividly in front of your eyes be it Emily Hand or or Hyde or any other of the children who were there. You know, uh, uh, Ruth, just one other thing. You mentioned Danielle Hagari, who's been doing a good job. I I, I totally agree. But what I I actually said to someone the other day, just past Shabbat, I said, I think he's the first IDF spokesman since you, about 20 years ago, uh, who's comfortable speaking in English, right? And in, in, in between you and him, most of the official IDF spokesmen, you have people underneath that person, but they have not. They were never comfortable in 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 speaking directly to the media in English. And I think that we see now how important that really is. That you have that higher ranking officer who's involved in also direct contact with the media. Absolutely, and absolutely, and I agree. Now, my my English. Well, I was not born in England like like Elon. I was born in Algeria, rather. So my I speak French first of all. But but the fact that I was so many years in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and I'm able to speak English give me access to other uh, media. The fact is that most of the IDF spokesmen were coming either from the intelligence, military intelligence or we're coming as commander, as is Daniel Agari. But only Daniel Agari have studied abroad, and that's why he brings a fair English that he's able to explain, he's able to take a, a journalist into Gaza and explain things. The fact that he has he, he, not a diplomatic background like myself, but rather a commander background and a commanding officer gives a lot of, um, of um, credence yeah. And credibility to to what he is bringing, and I think that all in all, I think this is a good example of how should be the next IDF uh, uh, speakers. I would also add one thing that I think that it should not be left alone in the hands of the military. As good a, jo- a job as the IDF spokesperson is doing, I think that there is a lot of room for other speakers on behalf of Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Prime Minister's Office, etc. And 
it's I'm sorry that they do not have a sort of a, a regular a bit once a day or, or three times a week briefing whereby you can identify Israel message with a figure, with a title and with a spokesperson that is consistent and reliable every day. Yeah, I'm I'm really holding myself because I think I have something very unique to add on top of everything you said about Elon, because I was writing an an article about humor and satire as an psychological intervention when you're doing propaganda. And I think this is what Elon is doing. And this is so smart because sometimes people don't have the ability or the, the need, they can't really hear anymore the facts. You know, it passes them by. And when Elon was reacting with his eyes and his eyebrows, and you were talking about uh, English and uh, the fact that he's a native speaker. I saw an interview with him and they told him, you know, you don't side like you don't sound like the typical Israeli. And he was trying to say, I don't hear, I'm not sound like, and he was making fun of it. And when you are making things a bit more humor, then you open people's mind and they don't reject you and they don't really say I can't hear that anymore it's a way another way he is using to deal with this very hard problem you know telling what's going on I, I agree with Dana of course but it cannot work every time I mean I I think that if Agari was there making jokes um, no of course it's not. totally inappropriate of course so not. I, I think it, it depends who does it who does it and exactly. where does it, etc. In, in a certain cultural environment, it is more acceptable than others. Yes. But I agree that this opens even more the minds and the hearts. Yeah. I agree. You it's see, Eretz Nederet. It's like Eretz Nederet. You know, it, you see how popular it becomes. This is it. It works. But you know, there are several interventions of psychology, not just humor and satire. So I think there is a long list. We can try them all. Why not? <laughs> yeah, but it's also it's 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 as he said in you know in my discussion with him. It's more about the storytelling than just throwing up the facts. It's personalizing it. It's giving more human side of things. You're not going to beat them with the numbers game, right? Exactly. They're always going to win. For example, on how many people are dead, they're always going to win, right? So but but smart. It's, it's, it's about the story that that that's deeper and 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 tells more than just what's happening uh, in terms of like facts and figures. But 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 even with all of that, and I think that you know everything we just said about how people overall we are, seem that they're doing a good job. I mean, just here in our in our webinar, uh, Ay, uh, I don't know his full his or her full name. Uh, writes that it's a very, this is a very moral uh, boosting episode here in LA, California. There's still talk though, that Israel's losing the PR war. New York, LA newspapers are cited when people were marking this. So while appreciative of the larger perspective as, as AY writes, there is a feeling around the world, probably in many Jewish communities, that Israel is not getting its version out. And I, it's always going to be this uphill battle, right, Donna? Yeah, I think, I think I'm not surprised by the message. I think we are doing our best, but there is still a lot of work. And we see we are, you know, when you when you talk about the numbers, this is why we need to talk about the stories and go deep down 
to the hearts and the feelings in order to influence the society, the bigger society around the world. And to be honest, I think we just got better since the 7th of October, but we are not there yet. If you're looking around the world, you see there is still a lot of hostile around Israel. You see how, as you said, how the media in the UK is not really really in our side. So the minute you still see those things that's still going on, I think... We understand we didn't win this war yet. I'm talking about the propaganda war. Yeah. Right, right. Ruth, uh, you know, former Brigadier General in the IDF, so I want to tap in for a moment into your military expertise as well. Uh, We're the third day uh, of this pause. Uh, In Hebrew, we call it hafuga, which is, you know, like a break of sorts. Uh, But to the world, it's a ceasefire, right? That's how the world has been looking at it. And we just saw now the release of of a number of hostages. The highlight one that the media is obviously pushing uh, and and playing up most is Abigail Idan, a four-year-old Israeli-American whose parents were murdered on October 7th. And she's been held in Gaza ever since then on her own, uh, together with with other Israelis, of course, but not with any other family members. And she was finally uh, released this evening uh, alongside another 13 Israelis, women and, and children. I think, you know, when I when I think about this, so A, it's it's heartwarming. It, it's so important to bring these people back. The 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 breakdown in trust between the people and our government and our military it was so deep after the events and the attacks and massacre of October 7th. But we're coming up on a on a on a in a cop towards a complicated deadline, right? Tomorrow will be the fourth day. We're supposed to get by then 50 hostages. And then there will be a question of, does it uh, continue and get extended? And for every day, Israel has the potential to maybe get 10 more hostages released in exchange for another day of, of a ceasefire or a lull or pause, whatever word you want to use. But what happens, for example, if Hamas starts to say, okay, today we're only going to give you six. What does Israel do? Does Israel wait? Does Israel give them another day? And what happens if that starts as, as the days go de- go by we get to a point where they're saying, okay, you know, today we're Sunday. By Tuesday, Wednesday, they say, okay, we're only going to give you now five or four. There's going to be a big part of Israeli society that's going to say every, you got to do it even for one. But there are going to be other people who are going to say, look, the clock is ticking. We still have a lot to do inside Gaza in terms of eliminating Hamas capabilities. We can't wait any longer. We have to send the troops down into southern Gaza, which has been left pretty much untouched until now. This is going to be a complicated balancing act for any government, and especially this one. Indeed, complicated question ahead of us. Absolutely. And I think that it's all a question of balancing between the two goals of this war that, again, we did not start it, and it started to a huge defeat on side of the Israeli in terms of the numbers of people that were killed and the number of people that were abducted and are still in in, in Gaza. So it's it's sort of an equilibrium that we need to maintain between those two goals. I think that the Israeli government has uh, uh, some more rope or patience uh, to uh, prolong this uh, uh, ceasefire, call it, or... or, um, pause 
for another two or three days, but I don't think that much more than that. And if Hamas continue, as they did yesterday, last night, if they continue with their tricks and with their their ideas of uh, trying to uh, uh, to play around, I think that the Israeli government there will the patience will end, and eventually it might be in, an, in another day, three days, or at max in another week. Not much more than this, but eventually we will go back to the main uh, goal, which is that at the end of the day, if we need to secure. Israeli southern border and 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 uh, peace to our uh, uh, to our citizens who are living there. Then we need really to eliminate all of Hamas military power and their ability to strike again. Now we have to be patient and to try and get as many of our abductees as possible. This is what we are doing. Hopefully, I'm praying that we'll prolong it in another five days and we'll get 100 of them or maybe even more than that. But at the end of the day, we are going to end up with, I'm afraid, two complicated facts. A, there will still be uh, uh, Israeli Israelis in Gaza. We are not going to be able, during that pause, even, even if it's prolonged, to take uh, to get all of them out, so there are still going to be Israelis in Hamas, and we are still going to have to continue and do what we did in the northern part of the Gaza Strip, in Hanunes, in Rafa, and in the southern part. It's going to be much more complicated because the civilian population is there. It's much be it's going to be much more complicated because our prison our abductees are there. But we will not have a choice because what we've seen. And this has been proven that military pressure on Hamas and Hamas leadership is bringing the hostages back. Now, you need to, 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 it's a sort of a very delicate equilibrium, but we need to be able to maintain it. Unfortunately, this is a situation. It's a tough, very tough uh, spot to be at, but we have not chosen it. So we have no other choice but to muddle through it. Yes, to be honest, um, I'm hearing Ruth and I have, I think we neglected one point of view, which is very important. Now in Israel, after we already see hostages, which are brought back, we have a huge, huge identity group. I think we have a new group in Israel. Let's say that out loud. We have a new group, which is the family of the hostages. And they have a very deep connection now. And it, I'm talking about a social psychology identity group, which they have one sentence that lead, you never leave anyone behind. And this is like the core essence of it, to be an Israeli, the family, the family, the togetherness. And you see that the citizens in Israel are really, they, they are really hugging this group because we can identify with the core essence of this group. And now after you see already that some hostages are home and even the families who got their loved ones are saying, we are still fighting for the others in the name of the group. It's going to be, to be very difficult. And Ruth was talking about the army. And of course, this is her point of view. And I will take the, the point of view of the families and the citizens. I think it's going to be even more harder than before to say we are not bringing them all back.
And I think that, that, you know, obviously that's the challenge, but it's going to, at some point, a government has to make a decision, right? Yeah. And, and and we have to remember that the bigger objective is, is to eliminate and degrade Hamas, as painful as it is to say that. But we, we we can't lose sight of the bigger challenge that we have. And that's why I'm, I'm you know, not sure every- which is the big challenge, because you, you already ha- you heard Gantz saying for him, the first priority is to bring back the hostages. So I think, let's say maybe in the government, I'm not sure everyone is seeing on the same, the sa- seeing that the same way that maybe we want to see he- that here now when we are talking. I'm not sure which one of the of the you know the tasks that we have are one above the other. Right. Yes, Ruth. It's not a dichotomy. It's not either or, and it's not a question of either that or or that. I think that even you know in the long run, strategically, we have to eliminate the military power of Hamas, and strategically, we have to bring them home. Now, the question is whether we are going to bring them home as we are doing these days by by a small number every day in return for humanitarian aid aid during a pause in, in the warfare, or we might also bring the rest of them at the end of the day, at the end of the war, when we exchange, for example, some of our uh, uh, or all of of the rest of the Israelis who will be staying there, in exchange for I can think of a number of things, maybe the life of Sinwar, the life of the leadership, uh, maybe they should be exiled from 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 Gaza, and then we get in return. Gaza free of this uh, a terrible uh, uh, leadership and maybe establish a different regime in in a demilitarized Gaza and and bring our uh, uh, the rest of our Israelis back. So it's not a dichotomy; it's a process, and in this process there are going to be very difficult, as we've seen so far, very difficult point where the government will have not to lose sight of both strategic uh, goals. And 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 uh, equilibrium between the two, balancing. It's a balancing act till the end of the day. But ultimately, even if you take 100 days or more than this, we have to achieve those two strategic goals. Yeah. This is just one of the very big complex dilemmas that I think we're going to face in the days ahead. I want to thank you, Ruth Yaron, former Brigadier General and spokesperson for the IDF, and Donna Luzon, a fellow at JPPI, and Elon Levy, who joined us earlier. Thank you very much. Now we can go back to watching the release of the hostages (laughs) from Gaza. (laughs) That's what all Israelis do on every night. You just turn on the TV and you just watch for hours. And you still can't believe. And you yes. still can't believe when you see that, you're like, it's unreal. Okay, thank you all very much. We pray for the rest of the return, obviously, of everyone. Yes. Good night. Thank you. Good night.